Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The 80s Rewind Show Podcast. It's time to bring you yet another amazing episode. And now... Welcome your host, Rob, the face for Radio Burgess. Enjoy the show. Hello, hello, it's the Rewind Show podcast with me, Rob, the face for Radio Burgess. Welcome along to the podcast, and I'm so glad you're here to join me today. Uh, thank you for joining me. Um, I love the 80s as much as you do, clearly, that's why you're here. So do me a favour, if you can, like and subscribe, and if you can share the love about the show to your friends and your family and your neighbour, your postman, and anybody you meet, that'd be absolutely wonderful. Thanks, I really appreciate it. In advance, I know you're going to do it for me. It's brilliant. I spoke to a fantastic guest today, a wonderful, wonderful man. Uh, Jack Hughes from the band Wang Chung. who had hits with uh, Don't Let Go, Dance All Days, and Everybody Have Fun Tonight, as well as many, many more. Uh, we spoke about his early days um, starting a band and playing guitar, and we spoke about Wang Chung supporting the cars, and as well as that, his solo work. I've been really lucky with the 80s Rewind show to meet such amazing people and lovely people. And Jack is one of those people that is just absolutely lovely. I had an amazing morning with him talking about music and things we loved. And uh, we had a lot in common. We're both Beatles fans, evidently. <laughs> um, but Jack could not be nicer and more accommodating. So thank you, Jack, for your time. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the podcast. And don't forget, like and subscribe. And, uh, well, let's just get to it. So, um... Where did it all start for you? Where, where, did, where was the genesis of music that made you go, this is what I want to do? Was it an album? Was it a film? Was it an experience? What was the first thing you... It was the Beatles. And uh, it was hearing Please Please Me on the radio. And I was only like seven years old, maybe eight years old. But um, I, I heard that music and I've told this story many times before, but I, was, I remember it. I was in the kitchen with my mum and she was doing the washing up and stuff and Please Please Me came on the radio and I th it just caught my ear, you know, and she was listening to it and it's got that chorus that goes, come on, come on, come on, come on. And she went, oh, come on then, and sort of like turned it off, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I just sort of thought, this is interesting because this is like, she doesn't like it and I really like it, you know. Um, so it sort of lodged. And then I think I probably saw them on the Royal Variety performance mm. soon after that. And uh, yeah, and and I think certainly from there, uh, that was what I wanted to do. And, you know, my dad was a musician. He played saxophone. So there was music in the house and stuff, but it was jazz, predominantly sort of big band jazz, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was there. And I, you know, I didn't really, well, that's it's not true to say I didn't like it. I did like some of the records that he played, some of the Dave Brubeck and or Desmond stuff, but I was, it was too, I was too young to get it at all. Do you know what I mean? But the, obviously the Beatles, I was yeah. still young, but it was, but I really did get it. And I wanted to learn guitar. My dad very kindly bought me a guitar, like a very basic acoustic, you know, and insisted that I had proper lessons. That was the sort of deal. If I was going to learn guitar, I had to have proper lessons. So I went to this, what seemed to be an old lady, but she was probably like, Certainly younger than I am now. <laughs> and uh, she she taught me to read music and play guitar in a fairly unrestricted sort of way. And otherwise I wasn't having to play classical guitar in that strange way that you have to sit right. with classical guitar. So I could put it on my, you know, right leg, Bob Dylan style and <laughs> strum away. And she helped me with figuring out chords and stuff, you know. So it was good. 
So was the guitar at the time being young? Was that, was that your sort of um, channel for getting that expression? Was yeah, it, was it definitely? It was. I started writing songs probably when I was eleven, twelve. Mm-hmm. I remember being in a band at school and writing. The band was called the Footprints, and uh, and I wrote a song called Through and Through. If and I sort of wrote, I'm trying to think, did I write the lyrics? I think I did actually write the music and lyrics, and. Uh, Play it to you if you want. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I can sort of remember the first section of it. That was, you know, it wasn't terrible. <laughs> so well, the Beatles are obviously a huge influence on you. What Did you feel the movement of, of the, the zeitgeist as well when, after that performance? Was it your friends were talking about it as well? And yeah. That, that reinforced your... Yeah. My best friend, Bill, you know, he started having guitar lessons with me. And uh, yeah, it was, it was very central in the culture. You know, it's not like now where music is a sort of add-on or... What is it? Uh, oral cheesecake, as uh, Stephen Pinker calls it. You know, it, it was like fundamental, and it was, in a sense, politically as well. In this, you know, because you know, when the Queen wanted to give them MBEs, and you know, Harold Wilson wanted to be photographed with them, it was it's the first time in a way that working class kids became desirable to the establishment. Mm. You know, and I don't think that's the case anymore. Yeah, <laughs> I can't imagine the Queen wanted to be photographed with. Tom York even, do you know what I mean? So, <laughs> I suppose it gave working class kids a reachable goal as well at that point. There was well, it no, did, yeah. yeah. It was that and football, you know, with the ways out in a sense, you know. Right. But it was also, um, yeah, I, I think it was a sort of window to a whole different way of looking at life really, which was that sort of the, uh, what's his name, David Lynch would call it, the the art life. Right, you know? yeah. 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 Do you have a, like, a Beatles period? Is it early Beatles or late Beatles? I suppose have? the later period I, I, I still love, you know. I mean, but... Some of the early stuff is great too. You know, I was working on things we said today a little while ago. Uh, sometimes I get slightly obsessed with songs and uh, I did this gig where they wanted me to uh, sort of do a little acoustic gig um, and talk about the songs that had formed me, as it were, that had made me. <clears throat> and I chose Things We Said Today as the Beatles song because it's so well crafted. Yeah. So I wanted to learn how to play it so I could show how the back end of the middle eight dovetails into the front of the chorus and yeah. all these and not that technical, you know, but things that make you sort of think, oh, right, yeah, it is. This is a whole very sophisticated way of, well, not even sophisticated, it's a very elegant way of songwriting, you know. Yeah. Did, yeah. It, did it make you um, deconstruct your own writing in a sense when you looked at it? Uh, does it make you sort of think, you know, I could yeah. have written differently if I'd, if I'd known this when I was 11 or... Maybe, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they have that story, don't they, about going across town to find the bloke who could play B7. <laughs> so I suppose there was a bit of that going on. <laughs> but by the time I was playing in bands and stuff, uh, this, this was around the Let It Be period, but also when I was into the cream and, yeah. and starting to get into prog bands as well. You know? Right. So the musical horizons were actually pretty high, you know. Yeah. Uh, so those guitar lessons that I'd had for years or so, you know, um, stood me in pretty good stead to try and figure out what was happening on Roundabout by Yes or yeah. whatever, you know. <laughs> I mean, there's, it's interesting that the Beatles didn't have any lessons really at all and then they wrote no. these amazing songs without any lessons. And no. it, But lessons or no lessons, everyone writes brilliant songs if they're brilliant songwriters, don't they? It's, exactly. It's really yeah. strange. Yeah. It doesn't matter which way you path you take as long as the songs... It's true. If a song sounds great on acoustic guitar, it's a good song, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's the, the adage I was here, which I think is right. No, I... I did a bit of teaching songwriting here in Canterbury. Oh, you did? At um, Christchurch University, yeah. I did it for a few years. And um, I used to preface the class saying to the students, you know, I can't teach you how to write songs, but I can sort of give you a methodology, uh, which is basically have a way of writing down lyric ideas and musical ideas 
absolutely instantly come to you, you know, as opposed yeah. to thinking, oh, I remember that. I write it down in the morning. <laughs> sort of thing, you know? And it's kind of being, you know, switched on all the time, really, or to observe what's going on around you, you know. Um, but yeah, I, it was interesting how there were certain people there uh, who just naturally could yeah, write songs. It's they just, just understood the language. They understood the kind of emotional relationship between the lyrics and the words and the melody and the harmony and stuff. It was just all there. And there were others who really struggled, you know, with, with those relationships, you know. Yeah. And um, and in, in a sense, the more they thought about it, the worse it got, <laughs> you know, on that respect. <laughs> but I do think, you know, when they sort of say everybody's got a song inside them, I do think everybody does actually, you know. Yeah. And, this, the experience of trying to write a song, at the very least, gives you a lot of respect for people who can do it. You know? Yeah, yeah. Is, does that happen to yourself? Are you walking down the road and you think, oh, oh a yeah. lyric and you, you have to write it down? Are you, do you put it in your phone? Do you put yeah. a piece of paper? Sing, it, in, sing it into my phone these days. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. my, my phone has a lot of recordings of me going... <laughs> <laughs> so your phone's just a whole demo, basically. It is. It's it a is, demo. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And sometimes the songs come complete almost. Do you know what I mean? You just sort of sit down and play them right out, you know, and... And other times you're tinkering away, you know. So on my latest uh, solo album, Electroacoustic Works, um, we got to work together. That first track, that riff I sort of thought of, you know, probably 10 years ago sort of thing. And wow. uh, it, was a, it was a while ago, but I was just came up with this sort of the kind of feel for the lyrics. And I was thinking, yeah, that riff, that may, might fit. And it, and it kind of did. So, <laughs> so don't chuck any away. That's the Never throw anything away. Yeah, and record everything, you know. And I, I think it's, I think any artist, you know, when you walk into a visual artist's studio and there's crap everywhere, isn't there? Do you yeah. know, all the magazines and all the stuff they collect and keep, you know, for reference. Uh, so it's the same with musicians. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so one of the first bands I saw... You, you worked for was is it uh, Scab Harry? Was that one of the, one of your early bands? <laughs> it was, yeah. And what what sort of band was it? Was it a, like a, it was a three piece? I think in the it was so it was me on I think I was playing guitar and singing. Um, uh, my mate Bill still with me on bass. Nigel Robinson was the drummer, and I think that was the core of the band really. Uh, that sort of three piece. Um, so what would have been contemporary? I guess it was a sort of hangover from the cream, really, who I never quite got over <laughs> as being a model for what a band should should be, you know. And, and we were like proggy, you know, it was proggy stuff. In fact, uh, the brother of Nigel, Ian, uh, did make recordings of us and he recently sent me a CD of all sorts of stuff. Wow. What was I, it like? Was it, was it better than you thought? Was it worse? It's ambitious, <laughs> In, you know, so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the best word, I think. <laughs> and then was it with um, Scab Harry... You supported Vinegar Joe. That I really don't recall, actually, but quite possibly. When was that? Uh, that would have been uh, early seventies. Yeah, if yeah, if I was supporting anybody, it would have been with that band with Scabberry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, because they're one of the greatest bands that never really broke through. Okay. Right? Yeah, Vinegar yeah. Joe. Yeah, right. I do remember the name, but I can't remember the band particularly. It was Elkie yeah. Brooks okay. and Robert Palmer. Uh, and then after that, was it the Intellectuals? Was that your band following? Well, I think, uh, so after Scab Harry, that was a school band, basically. Right, right, right. So, uh, so then I went to university. And by the time I was at university, I was interested in classical music, I suppose, because you couldn't study jazz and rock like you can now. So a music degree meant music, you know, um, which was considered at the time, you know, classical music. You know, and, and everything else was, you know, pop music especially was really considered trash. And even film music was a joke for wow. people then you know i find it very interesting how now film music is regarded as well that's classical music which it really isn't yeah <laughs> it's orchestral music you know um but it ain't classical that's for sure um and that's not a criticism it's just like it, it, 
don't mix those two things up, I don't think, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, we could spend the rest of the morning talking about that, actually. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how you can buy, you know, film soundtracks separately, the orchestral yeah, versions. It's yeah. just, and they sell just as well now. It's they a, do. It's yeah. just got Danny Elfman's name on it. Yeah, you know, yeah. No, absolutely. And John Williams, everyone's going, oh, this is classical music. You know? <laughs> and even uh, computer games, you know, on, on Radio 3, which I listened to a lot uh, on Saturday afternoons for a while, they had a, you know, a programme that talked about computer gaming music yeah. uh, as, you know, a legitimate realm of... Um, Self-expression, which it certainly is that, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, I guess the big difference for me is, you know, when you've got music that's underpinning a narrative, accompanying it in a sense, that's a very different position from like a symphony, which is a bit of abstract music, which may well have narrative in it, but it's, mm. it's a different kind of approach to where the music sits, you know. Yeah. And uh, th- those are important distinctions. I think. Yeah. So it, at, the, at this point in your life, if it was classical or pop, which one would you go for? Like if I put them down and said, pick one. It is sort of desert island. Kind yeah, of yeah, I suppose way. it would be classical, you know, which isn't to say I don't listen to a lot of pop music, you know. Uh, yeah. I do. I'm still, you know, interested in, you know, hearing new bands and stuff and come across stuff all the time, which is interesting. You know, most recently the the Floating Points album um, with uh, Ferris Sanders and the London Symphony Orchestra. I guess it's hot. Well, it's file under jazz. They file it under, you know. But what I love about it is that it's kind of unclassifiable, you know. Yeah. But, but it's uh, it was uh, out in 2020, I think. It's a masterpiece. Is it? Like, is it? really amazing, yeah. So if people are going into that sort of music, would that be your go-to album at the moment, would you say? Uh, right now, it would, yeah. Although I can't think of many people who would come back to me and go, like, oh, yeah, it's brilliant, because it's got uh, saxophone, improvised saxophone right. all over it, which a lot of people, it seems to bother modern the modern sensibility that somebody's just kind of meandering their way through it <clears throat> i love that personally but uh people seem to want to just have something more structured is that kind know. of snobbery involved it sounds as like the kind of I don't know that's snobbery i think it's a taste thing you know uh, i think you know jazz is a four-letter word <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of people are offended by it you know well, offended is too strong a word but they just don't like it, like the sensibility of it, you know. Yeah. And I get that. I didn't, you know, for many, many years, I didn't uh, really buy jazz albums and stuff, you know. And uh, I, was, I was thinking recently about, you know, uh, Peter Wolf, who produced Everybody Have Fun Tonight, you know, he joined uh, Frank Zappa's band. Right. And, uh, and Frank uh, had musicians that were, you were either in Miles Davis's band or Frank Zappa's band, if you were one of those kind of high-powered, trained in Berkeley-type musicians in the States, you know. Yeah. And uh, I remember people, talk, uh, Peter talking to me about Miles and I was like, don't really know his, his work, you know, which I didn't in the 80s, you know. And Peter said, oh God, you know, that's crap. <laughs> Took me out in his car and we drove around, you know, wherever we were, like West Hollywood or something, and uh, <laughs> listening to Nefertiti. And I sort of thought, oh yeah, this is pretty good. And I bought the album and I liked it, but yeah. it wasn't until the 90s when I was working with Chris Hughes, who played me kind of blue, uh, which is the, great in, in a sense the classic Miles album, yeah. int- entry level Miles album, uh, that it suddenly dawned on me what was going on. And I don't know whether you have this, but sometimes something that was really pretty opaque to you suddenly illuminates and yeah. becomes fascinating. And so I spent you know a lot of time then getting myself acquainted with that sort of jazz, the the classic yeah. jazz stuff, you know. For me, it was um, Led Zeppelin. First, okay. When I heard Led Zeppelin the first time, I just thought, oh, this is, I can't get my head around this. Interesting. Yeah. And um, Billy Connolly says, you either get it or you don't. I yeah. think I think that's a great way of looking at things, especially yeah. when you get older as well. Yeah. And uh, I, 
put the first album on, I thought, this is just racket yeah. to a degree. Yeah. And then 15 years- I do remember years, feeling that myself, yeah. actually. And yeah, then yeah, 15 yeah. years later, I was like, this is just fantastic and just mind blowing. It's, <laughs> it's just crazy how it turns around that way. Where you, I don't know, do you think it's like, as you get older, your taste change or you just think you become more aware of different music that it makes it more acceptable? Do you think it's- It's an interesting question. You know, I mean, there is this ridiculous thing that you read, you know, saying oh, your music taste is formed by the time you're, 20 or something. In the yeah. End. It's crap, I think. You know. um, so I think it's, I don't know. I think some people use music a bit like a, well, I think people, well, who am I to talk about people? But I observed over the years, you know, people using art music like a mirror. So it has to reflect them yeah. back, back to themselves in some way or other, you know. And I think as you get older, maybe that lessens and you start to hear music as it is and then you go to it. And, yeah, and sort of absorb it into yourself, you know. So it depends whether it's a sort of um, a sort of narcissistic process where you just want it to be like you, you know, or whether it's a sort of exploratory process where you want to kind of expand your thinking, and and as your thinking expands, these bands or musicians or whatever it might be uh, come into your orbit, you know. And, yeah, and then you get into it, you know. And maybe you get more analytical as you get older as well about, you know. Yeah, like you said about the songwriting, you get a bit more sort of. Mm-hmm. You, I don't know, maybe people start to understand music on a level they don't understand why they understand it. Yeah. It makes any sense. Yeah. Well, maybe even the whole notion of understanding music is inflating what you're doing, really, you know, because it's like, uh, I remember there's that, there's that old thing, isn't there? You know, there's, there's, there's just good and bad music. There's, there's no sort of genre yeah. definitions, you know, jazz, classical, rock. Um, you know, whatever. Um, but Miles sort of slightly, it's attributed to him anyway, the, uh, slightly refined it by saying, you know, there's just music that interests me and music that doesn't, you know. Yeah. And I think uh, that, and again, it, you know, some people I think are just happy for music to be in the background while they're getting ready for a club or something like that. And then it's got to be a certain sort of mood and it's got to fit with them where they are. Yeah. Other people want to sit and listen to the music and, and find out about it and see where it's going, you know. And there, there are a lot of people like that, I think, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and that's that's the difference, maybe. You know? I had a, a sort of similar thing where I, the power of music frightened me at one point. Mm-hmm. And I was um, I was DJing in a club for many years yeah. and I was playing a dance classic and I, I think I had seven, 800 in the room, something like that. It was quite busy. And um, I remember playing this song and I said, right, and the chorus, now sing. And this they all sung exactly at the same time. Mm-hmm. And uh, this whole wall of sound just hit me. Like, yeah. like, and I was like, oh, this is scary. Yes. <laughs> it's either you embrace this power yep. or you, you get frightened. And I was terrified for a minute, yeah. like, because I just thought anything can happen. Mm. But nothing happened. Everyone was having a great time and they had the hands in the air and stuff. But you, you understand the power of if you get the right sort of emotion going yeah. with music, you can do anything with it. And when you see um, sort of, or you read historical riots at rock concerts and stuff like that, I totally understood it in that one second. Mm-hmm. Like, I get how you could just... So, you know, smash the place up and people will do it mm. because everyone's just in the same place at the same time and the same mindset. It's a very interesting phenomenon. It is, <laughs> it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's sort of mass hysteria, isn't it, really? <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. But it's a very positive thing as well, I think, you know, the 100%. experience of being in a crowd at a gig where you're all in the same moment with the same emotion in a sense. You yeah. Know, and, uh, and it's being transmitted at you for, by another human being yeah. rather than a film or a that's why I think the, the live experience over the two years of COVID has been really, I've missed that so much yeah. because, you know, seeing lots of bands and 
just being in the room with strangers that put their arms around you and hello mate. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. you know, so you know this person is your best friend for the next two hours. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> that but, doesn't happen so much with the Barbican, but <laughs> so <laughs> so after that, was it fifty seven men you was in with Glenn, Glenn Gregory yeah. from Heaven Seventy? What sort of band was that? Was that was that sort of a prog band again? Was that an, an industrial band? It was more band? kind of funky. You know, I guess you know. So I met Nick when I left university, uh, having decided that being a classical composer was probably a little impractical. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> so Nick, you know, had this band, The Intellectuals, which I joined effectively through this, the legendary audition, you know, up in North London. And um, uh, yeah, and the, the pattern in those days was, so you form the band, you rehearse. Um, I think we did some demos, which you send to the record companies, and then you were on this sort of circuit of pubs on the outskirts of London, you know. Mm. Uh, I guess Camden Town was the sort of the most central area that you would play. And sometimes we did gigs at the Marquee or um, there was a place in Victoria called um, The Venue, I think, which was a popular place at the time. Um, that probably was a little later that, that we did those places. But, um, but yeah, you were sort of on this thing and the record company guys would come and hear you because they were drinking these pubs, you know. And then they'd sort of sign you or they wouldn't, you know, and with the intellectuals, they didn't sign us, you know. So we thought, mm, maybe it's me and Nick sort of singing and stuff. We were crap singers. And like, you know, <laughs> in fact, we were pretty awful all the way around, really. So uh, we thought, you know, get Glenn in. He's a bit like Brian Ferry, a bit kind of like suave and yeah. attractive, you know, and uh, get uh, Lee in on bass. I, think, I guess Nick was still playing guitar at this point. So Lee Gorman played bass. And uh, we had a keyboard player, so me and Nick on guitars, I guess. So it was quite a big band. It felt like uh, like 57 Men, it was called that, <laughs> because it felt like there were 57 men, you know. Um, and Darren Costin was on drums, of course, by that time. Uh, so the same thing, did some demos, interested in the demos, you know, came to see us, not interested in the band. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, so um, the next time around, we sort of thought, okay, let's slim it right down. And, and I guess we sort of, there was... It was possibly breakup time at that point for me and Nick and Darren. But I said, look, let's, uh, you know, I'll sing, I'll play guitar. Nick, you need to play bass. And Darren, you play drums. So we're like a little three-piece, you know. And I guess the police were a sort of a, a model at that time because right. they were massively successful. But I could see how touring will become practical and stuff within that format, you know. And, um, yeah, and we did the demos and we didn't do any gigs and <laughs> got signed. <laughs> so they didn't actually see what they were letting. So on record, you were fantastic. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so we, yeah, we signed to this little label called Rewind Records. Wow. And, uh, so they put out the first two singles that we ever did. And John Peel played one of them uh, and was fairly disparaging about it, I think. But nevertheless, he played it and... Um, you know, and we built up, we did more of these, the sort of London gigs and started building up a sort of following. Um, by that time, a guy called Dave Bernand joined the band and, and that's where it became Huang Chung. Yeah. H-U-A-N-G. Nice. Yeah. So was you signed to Astra at this point? It was, was um, Arista. Yeah. Arista. So the, the Arista deal came out of us, yeah, from that process of having the little indie deal. Yeah. And, uh, and we had a manager and he kind of talked Arista into 
doing a, I think it was a two album or maybe it was a three album deal that we did with them, you know, wow. but always an option for them to get out of it if they wanted to. <laughs> get out of clubs, yeah. <laughs> at that time, was you writing songs for uh, Points on a Curve at this bit? Was it sort of aiming towards that, was it? Well, the Huang Chung album was our sort of live set, you know. And uh, when you talk about, you know, the songwriting on that album, I mean, we want to reissue that this year because it's the 40th anniversary of this Fantastic. year. Fantastic. You know? So, uh, in fact, I downloaded all the files for the for the multi-tracks last night, actually. And, uh, wow. It's really interesting to, to hear it. And it's a good record. It's For me, it's got a... You know, something like Tina Na has got a lot of uh, my attempting to write a song that uses modern harmony, but within a sort of rock yeah. uh, context, you know. So it's uh, it's quite a strange sounding song. You, know? uh, you can listen to it in some ways as a sort of prototype of Dancehall Days, yeah. uh, which it, it sort of is, you know. But um, if if, uh, if you ever want me to talk you through the chords, I can. And you'll be like, <laughs> wow, they're pretty dissonant chords. You know? so. <laughs> and was it true David Geffen changed... The name, is yes, right? yeah. Wow. So when we signed, uh, so we did the Arista album. Uh, at the end of that process, I wrote Dancehall Days, and uh, Dancehall Days was clearly a, a sort of hit song. There was a very different sense from people when then they heard that track. You know, it's kind of suddenly our publishers wanted to invite us out for lunch and stuff. You know, and it's all like we never met them before, really. You know? And uh, so, and then we did a version of Dancehall Days with Tim Freeze Green. Tim right. Freeze Green was at that time working with Talk Talk. And right, was yeah, yeah. Like considered to be state of the art, but also experimental. The sort of Nigel Godrich of his time, I suppose, you know. Uh, but the experience of working with him was tough, actually, because it was it was kind of like he wanted to make the record, basically, and then have me sing on it. Yeah. And I didn't like what he did with it. I don't think any of us did, you know. Um, so we, was it just going to be you just doing vocals and he was going to do all the music and stuff? Essentially. Yeah. But in the 80s, you know, it was kind of going that way because you had drum machines and yeah. synths and it started to, that model of needing the band in the studio uh, to play stuff was no longer even desirable, really. It was like, so he was trying to get a much more quirky kind of pop thing out of it. And that version of Dancehall Days is going to be on the, oh, on these reissues, you know. Um, and listening to it now, I sort of think, Nah, this this isn't good, you know. So anyway, we had this point where we recorded Dancehall Days for Arista, and um, but we got a new manager, and this new manager sort of said, "You've got to get out of this Arista deal and sign to an American label because mm. this degree of musicality that you've got." And I don't see that in a sort of self-aggrandizing way. It's just like we, the the music quality that we were aiming at was different from you know the bands that got signed in this in this country. You know? Yeah. Um, so David essentially. Um, got us out of the Arista deal, you know, which felt dangerous at the time in a way because <laughs> they were kind of like, okay, let's do a second album, you know, uh, and we're willing to go with that. And Dave was like, no, we want we want out of the deal and we want that recording of, well, you can keep that recording of Dancehall Days, but, you know, we we won't, don't want you to apply the re-recording clause. To right. It. So they agree to all of these things, which in retrospect, I'm sure... <laughs> they regret <laughs> or sort of maybe thought oh, wow how did we do that how did david talk us into this you know? but david was a very good manager because <laughs> yeah. he could talk people into that stuff so we were in the wilderness for a few weeks and but david had the confidence of a, a good manager to go to the states and he got us a deal office from electra i think and from geffen and in the end we decided to go with geffen i mean geffen what a label yeah just amazing mm, in those days it was a very little label you know yeah. uh in, they had offices on Sunset Boulevard that were great, you know, one-storey building and just maybe, I don't know, 
10, 15 people working in the office and we sort of knew them all and they were all very experienced guys and you felt like you were in sort of safe hands with them. I mean, uh, when you look at his back catalogue, like Joni and the Eagles. Well, absolutely. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah, Jackson Brown. Yeah. Is, now, like, he's a central sort of guru figure in the, in the music business from the early 70s on, really, as a manager first and then as a label owner. And then obviously into DreamWorks. I think he's, um, he's, he's, he's started sort of unorthodox as well, isn't he, as a manager? And I think yeah. that suits bands yeah. like yourself at the time. They were yeah. kind of... Well, he know. sort of got into... He was into artists, I think, you know. That's right. So he wasn't into formula, formularising things. Although, no, I'd, I'd say Geffen was a sort of maverick label, really, because, you know, they signed Guns N' Roses and Nirvana when grunge was... You know, just a and glint, nobody wanted to touch it in its father's eyes. Yeah. So absolutely, nobody wanted those bands. You know, but he saw it, or rather, he gave license to his A and R guys to, to sign that stuff, and and then they would get behind it. That's the thing with American labels. I found once they made the decision to go with it, they really went with it and put yeah. money on the table. And whereas over here, you, know, you get signed to a label, but they don't put money into it. And they, is it kind of good luck, boys? You know, it is, you, yeah, you yeah. sign it and good luck, boys. Yes. Yeah, yeah. so, like, so we put this out, you know, and, and if it goes to number one, then we'll. Think about giving you a bit of money. Yeah, here, boy, have a cigar. You're yeah. going to go far. <laughs> All of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Pink Floyd called it early, I think, on that one. They got it right. Yeah. So you're recording the album with uh, Ross Callum and Chris Hughes. Yes, that's... Who, who done Tears for Fears yep. and, and Adamant to yep. agree. Yeah. Yep. I mean, amazing producers. They're one of the guys that made those 80s sounds. What was it like recording the album? Uh, great. Uh, will be the headline. Uh, and <laughs> underneath it was a but, you know, very long-winded, you know. And that was partly to do with the technology. But also, I think, partly to do with the mindset. <clears throat> so the technology was very early drum machines, synthesising you know, the Fairlight CMI, yeah. um, which the theory of it was, yeah, this instrument where you could put a sound into it and then play, you know, tune it to sort of equal temperament and play it in any key. And, you know, the reality was that it was like very low sampling rate <laughs> quality and horrendous to get it to run in sync with the tape machine. There's no MIDI stuff. back then, was there? No, there was. Uh, you, basically, the technology was the same that they used in movies to sync up pictures with soundtrack. Right. So it was tested, but it was it was not designed to be shuttling back and forth, you know, making a pop record sort of thing. Yeah. It was designed for, for a sort of one-off run through, do you know what I mean, and just line things up, you know. Yeah. And what sort of producers were they? Were they very hands-on? Were they sort of, did they just let you experiment and then put their part in when they felt necessary or did they sort of... Chris was pretty hands-on, yeah. yeah. You know, he was definitely in control with, with the Fairlight and, um, and very painstaking and meticulous. Uh, and I think there was in those days, you know, having been in a world of where, you know, you've got your band in the studio, uh, drums are all mic'd up, a bit of screen around them, you know, bass. Well, like Let It Be, the Beatles in Let It Be, you know, they're all yeah. in the room together playing. So Huang Chung, a lot of that was recorded in that in that way. Uh, and so you're reliant on the musician to keep in time, keep in tune, you know, and to, and to perform, <laughs> basically, you know. And I think once these machines came in, especially doing the drum parts, mm. there was this sense, okay, well, that it's going to be in time because it's a machine. You know? Yeah. And also it's not going to do fills all the time <laughs> because it's a machine, you know. <laughs> so it was so like heaven on earth <laughs> really, in some ways. Uh, but on the other hand, you've got this very sort of, there's no life coming from it, you know. You, yeah. You have to sort of create that really, you know, that sort of Frankenstein. You have to put a few 40,000 volts through it sort of thing to try and get it to to have some energy, you know. Um was it easy to lock into the drum machines? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I enjoyed it. You know, and there were all sorts of records that were made with drum machines at the time that we loved, you know. Yeah. So, um, you know, 
Dare, the Human League album, springs to mind as the first kind of truly, I mean, I know this German band's, you know, Kraftwerk and so on doing stuff, but for me, Dare was the first, like, English good songs, uh, that, that whole kind of feel for things that English bands had, you know, that was yeah. done entirely e- electronically. And know? it was at Abbey Road you were, you were recording? We were recording Points on the Curve at Abbey Road, yeah. Studio yeah. 2. You Studio saying, 2, yeah, wow. yeah that, that big, big room. That's and we were there every day for, I'd say, i say nine months, you know, maybe it wasn't quite that long, but it wasn't far short of it. And the whole album project took about a year to... Wow. And did it? Did the Abbey Road? Because I know you're a Beatles man. We were talking Massive. before we yeah. were talking earlier. Yeah. Did the magic ever wear off for you being in that room? Or every day when you stepped through the doors, you're like, "Wow!" Was it? There was, you know, making an album is a definitely a journey, you know. And that's it starts off frothy and great, like all journeys do, you know. And then there's <laughs> that long plateau slog <laughs> of actually, you know, getting the hi hat. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Right, or whatever it might be, you know, these little nuts and bolts that have to be great. And certainly the thinking with the album was that if every single ingredient was, in inverted commas, perfect, then the song would be perfect. Yeah. Know? And that it was now possible to make the perfect pop record, you know. Yeah. So I think we all had that aspiration. But of course... <laughs> It's a ridiculous idea, <laughs> you know, and, and making great records is all about capturing moments and, say, yeah. and a certain sort of energy and stuff. It took me a while to figure that out. But, <laughs> but in Abbey Road, no, we were meticulous. And uh, I was saying earlier, you know, sort of doing vocals at Abbey Road for me, you know, we, we did them in Studio 2. It would have probably been better to use Studio 3 and somewhere yeah. a little less. So you'd be so, on your own in this huge oh, room. this massive room. Doing yeah. a vocal. Yeah. yeah. So you set up headphones baffle in front of you, the mic, and everything's going into the control room, which was on effectively first floor level. And all you had was this window that you couldn't really see into it from that ground floor level. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you do a vocal take. Uh, so you're hearing the track, hearing your vocal. And at the end of it, there's silence sort of thing. So you speak into the mic, go, how's that? You know, <laughs> nothing until they switch the talk back button on. And then when they do that, you can hear that everyone's laughing and someone's telling the story. And they go, yeah, it's great. Do it again. You know? <laughs> So okay, you do it again, you know, and after about the fourth time, your voice is starting to go, you know, and they're like, yeah, starting to get there now. And it's like, you know, is anybody actually listening to these takes? You're probably having lunch. Because again, you know, these days, you know, you can do take after take after take and keep them all, you know, and yeah. then review it. But then you would do a take on the vocal track and then you'd erase that track with the next take. Wow. Know, sort of. So, you know, and I would have this sense of like, well, I've nailed that line, you know. And it's yeah. like, no, we just do the whole thing again. It's like, don't you want to keep that? And it's like, no. <laughs> so it did get frustrating, lonely, and 
you know, it was despairing at some points. <laughs> but still amazing. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You get over all that, you know, and, uh, but I guess, you know, I, I learned a lot about the disciplines of working in, in music, working as a musician, as an artist and yeah. that it's, um, <laughs> I was used to say this um, to my son Harry. Do you mean music isn't fun? Yeah. <laughs> it's like about really nailing things and and kind of achieving an objective. You know? It's a shame that musicians today won't really get a studio experience anymore because it's all in the box with computers. Isn't yeah, it? it's a shame it no is. one has that. Sort of. Yeah, I know standing on your own in the mid studio too singing yeah. was. Miserable. At the time, you know, oh no, but yeah. I, I mean, you wouldn't have changed that for the world, would no, you? No, 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 absolutely. And I was very aware towards the sort of mid 80s, you know, we were working in studios like Ocean Way in the States. Wow. And in LA and Hit Factory in New York and stuff. And That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and to work in those studios was a thrill. And I loved it. You know, the, the, during the 80s, you know, the tour, we didn't do that much touring, but the live thing I found really stressful, you know, but yeah. working in the studios, I adored it. The, 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 um, the atmosphere and the concentration on the studio. The different studios as well. Was there a different sort of working ethic and totally. atmosphere in that? Was the Americans more softer than the British? Was it? I've heard that before. Yeah. Um, they're not softer. They, they were more professional. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, think, I mean, I say that Abbey Road was super professional in this sort of BBC kind of way in that everything worked and they found innovative solutions, you know. Yeah. But uh, I can remember doing work in the hit factory in uh, in New York City. And this was when I did my solo album after Wang Chung. And we were in there during the day. Uh, and when we left at sort of like nine in the evening, they broke the studio down and another band came in and recorded from like 10 till mm. six or something <laughs> the following morning. And when we came back in at sort of 10 the next morning, the, the whole studio, almost down to the book and the page it was open at sort of thing, was back. <laughs> where it was before, <laughs> do you know I mean? So that you, remarkable the, the, the way the engineers and the tape ops were they, disciplined. Are they, and are they quite I mean. experimental in the States as well? Like in Abbey Less Road? Experimental, Less experimental. Say, yeah, yeah. So it's much more professionalised, you know, much more right. kind of... Uh, Uniformed to a degree. Yeah, you, you, you get a good, it sort of reflects in the music in a way, you know. Yeah. Over here, it's geared up sort of to get that sort of experimental, surprising. We never thought that would work, but it really does, you know, by combining this and that. Let's plug that in. And somebody was, you know, playing a saw backwards or something, you know. It's, you know, whereas in the States, it's it's more kind of, no, this is how you do that. You know, we yeah. need an you know, excellent microphone, gold-plated connectors into the desk and, you know, and uh, this tape machine and Dolby-S <laughs> or what we were using at the time. And, um, you know, just incredible sound, you know. Yeah. But it's down to you as the musician to come up with the ideas. You know, you're not getting okay, prodded yeah. and sort of <laughs> punched by the engineers. <laughs> Moved along, yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So um, you had um, Dance All Days come off the, the album. Yes. What was the inspiration <clears throat> behind the song originally? Do you remember where that came from mm. or was it... <sighs> I don't, it wasn't inspired by a particular event and stuff, but it was a sort of a mix of, uh, you know, Dance All Days was kind of remi- um, rhymed with Dolores Hayes. And Dolores <laughs> Hayes was a character in Nabokov's book Lolita, which right. I was reading at the time. And I think the whole dance all thing, you know, when my dad, when I was young, you know, like when I was like first learning guitar, sort of 12, 13, 14, I used to play in his band right. um, in a highly underage sort of way, <laughs> you know. Um, so the dance hall was maybe the pavilion in Gillingham where he used to play and I used to be in his band, you know. <laughs> so there was some sort of nostalgic thing going on. And I think that's the emotion that people get from that song. And certainly at the time they did. The first video we did was with Derek Jarman. Wow. And uh, yeah, so yeah. Derek was, uh, he would make pop videos, the stuff he liked uh, 
to finance his movies, you know. <laughs> and I felt very honoured, you know, to be <laughs> helping him to finance Caravaggio or whatever he was working on at the time. Um, but, um, yeah, he, he picked up on that nostalgic thing. So his video uses some Super 8 colour video film that his father took at the New York World Fair and stuff and video footage of him as a baby in Scotland. And um, so, you know, I think that, you know, when I, you and everyone we knew could believe doing, sharing what was true, you know, the sort of idealism, idealization of the past is something in Dancehall days. So it was definitely sort of uh, that nostalgic thing was going on. Musically, I always think that it was influenced by Little Feet and their, oh, wow. their sort of shuffly kind of feel, you know, and uh, so that's that sort of four on the, you know, strong backbeat. Yeah. But, but the rhythm is, you know, it's got that sort of Yeah, thing. it's kind of loose and tight at the yeah, same time. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And I sort of wanted that. Uh, but working with drum machines, trying to get a drum machine to do that in the early <laughs> 80s was nigh on impossible. That was a very time-consuming <laughs> process. But we sort of came up with it, you know. Yeah. There's a wonderful, um, I was on YouTube, and uh, there's yourself doing it on um, Top of the Pops. Yes. I think it's. I think it was December or January, I can't remember what it was, and yeah. you, were, you were just really enjoying yourself yeah. doing the song. Yeah. And it was amazing. It was a thrill to be on Top of the Pops. Was it, um, on a side note now about Top of the Pops, was it um, a fun experience? Because you see documentaries now, and they say it was very much sort of regimented, like, you know, like you all dance and sing and throw balloons around. Was Did you get that vibe when you were there? It was a bit like that. You know, there were these big cameras, you know, sort of on the massive stands that were moved around quite quickly. Yeah. And there were maybe 30 people in the audience. You know, you, when you watch Top of the Pops, it seems like it's this, you know, 100, 200 people having a party, you know. Uh, and there was this kind of, you know, so there's probably, I guess, two stages. So one band setting up on one stage while the other's doing their thing. So it's it's definitely geared up to the, uh, what's the requirements of yeah. make, making a TV show, you know. So the audience would be like pushed <laughs> in front of the stage. Do you mean it's like, okay, go, you know, and they film and they, everyone would be dancing around. Do you know I mean? And then it would stop and they go, okay, cut, next. And then push the audience back to the other stage, dance now, you know, it's regimented in that sense. But yes. but it was a thing, do you know what I mean? And being at the BBC and yeah. being in that atmosphere and just that whole thing of you knew that you were going to be broadcast to the whole nation as it were you know yeah. uh which is again is not something that happens anymore really you know? it's, it's lovely to see like there's you and nick and you're just looking at each other like we've done yeah. it you, yeah. you, you can yeah. see your eyes are huge yeah. i'm sure you were petrified <laughs> <laughs> but, but i think you know the great thing about being in a band is that you get to share these experiences you know and so they become real to, to you guys that yeah. sort of thing you know because uh, it's very hard to communicate what it's like to yeah. people who've never done it, you know. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just an institution that's, I, I miss it. I used to watch yeah. all the pops, like, religiously. Whether yeah. I hated what was on or not. Yeah. <laughs> Which one did, because a lot of it was just shite, wasn't it? You know? But you had to but, see. Yeah. But yeah, but there was occasionally, well, I suppose more than occasionally, there was stuff on that was great, you know, and sort of Bowie when he was on. And, and Nirvana. When yeah, they, absolutely. I don't think I was watching it by then. But <laughs> it was, uh, yeah. But I remember the Bowie appearances were thrilling, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and certain artists, you know, you just really get into what they were doing, you know. I mean, you've you've had an amazing sort of like if you're a rock person, music mm. person, journey from Abbey Road to Bowie places. It's, mm. it's been an amazing journey for you, isn't it? It has. It really has. Um, yeah, and I think the whole thing of working in the states a lot as well was a massive bonus. You Did know? you was it were you touring with the Cars for a while? Mm-hmm. And what what so, were they like to work with? Were they great? You know, yeah, I mean, um, a great band, <clears throat> yeah, absolutely amazing yeah. band. I mean, they were playing. So, you know, Dance with Days was was that sort of hit, it's sort of top forty hit, I suppose. And we had Don't Let Go as well. You know, anyway, Points on the Curve was a successful album, and Geffen were pushing it. You know, and they got us this tour with the Cars, who were hugely successful at that point. Um, 
Heartbeat City was the album, I think, wasn't it? And yeah. uh, Drive was used on Live Aid. What a song. Yeah. <clears throat> and so they were playing sixty to 80,000 seaters every night. Well, not every night, you know, but that was, you'd yeah. roll into town, you'd do that gig, you'd have the, maybe the day off next. But there were probably, you know, sort of four days playing, a couple of days off and a lot of gigs, you know. And because Wang Chung was, you know, MTV and stuff, it was like a household name. You know, those places were pretty packed when we wow. played our opening set, you know, because sometimes when the support band comes on, everyone's in the bar, aren't they? You know, That's right, like, yeah. But no, these were pretty packed. And we were like young English boys, sort of, you know, me, Nick and Darren, <clears throat> and a guy called Graham Pleath, who was our keyboard player at the time. And we really gave it everything we had, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And the crowd loved it, you know. And then when the cars came on, <clears throat> they had this... Uh, policy of not speaking to the audience. Right. Okay. Which was a sort of arty kind of, you know, cars were, Rico Cassic yeah. especially, was very into the sort of art aspects of pop music, you know, post Andy Warhol sense of, you know, what is pop music and how do you deconstruct kind of, it? Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> Live. So the whole thing that they play is a great song. People that go crazy in the audience and they just turn their backs on the audience for like a few minutes and then they turn back again and play the next song. And I got the sort of minimalism of that you know and um what are you supposed to say hello cleveland and all yeah. that stuff how are you doing tonight and all <laughs> thanks that for coming yeah so rick yeah. was not into doing all that you know i totally understand it but it progressively pissed off the audience through the night such wow. that by the end of it they thought wang chang were brilliant but you know the cars <laughs> really enjoy it even though the cars were delivering a state-of-the-art show with lights and they had two single of ears running in sync and yeah. stuff and it was like an Real state-of-the-art show, brilliant show they did, you know. It's amazing, like, he was deconstructing it live almost and mm. trying to alienate his audience. Yeah. <laughs> Successfully, I saw, <laughs> I saw Jeff Lynn a few years ago okay. um, at the O2, and you were kind of waiting for Jeff to speak. Okay. And he did about five numbers, all amazing, and he mm. just went, thanks very much, everyone went mental. That's all he had to say. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't like, he's yeah. rude. You just yeah. go on, say something, Jeff. Everyone's yeah. like, come on, just say hello to us. Yeah. <laughs> you, have to, you have to take that all into account, I think. <clears throat> but Rick was being very kind of you know, this is how I'm going to do it, you know. Yeah. And all power to him, you know, he didn't deviate from that for the whole tour, I don't think. So, <laughs> so did the tour um, <clears throat> help the band or were you, yes. you were already sort of doing well by that point? Yeah. I mean, we were very fortunate to have MTV. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Uh, was it fortunate? Yes, it was. <laughs> because it was the first time, <clears throat> you know, in the States before that, you know, each city would have its own top radio stations. They'd all right. have a particular sound. Uh, and you getting on those radio stations was tough, you know. And if you were sort of like Wang Chung in a sense, because of being signed to Geffen was a sort of LA band. Yeah. Or perceived to be that way in the States. So New York was always quite hostile to us, you know. <clears throat> not in a like, not like it would be here, but, yeah. you know, it was, you know, we, we would certainly weren't big on the East Coast in the same way we were on the West, you know. Yeah. And, um, yeah, but MTV was the first time that the same product, if you like to use that awful word, was broadcast across the whole nation. So yeah. Everybody got the same thing. A sort of homogenization that is the beginning of the end of, you know, the music business as it was, do you know I mean, which was much more local and much more focused on uh, sort of individual quirks and so stuff. So do you know? notice like the rock cities, for instance, you know, they sort of oh, see yeah. certain rock cities that... Mm. Detroit being one, but yeah. they, they sort of, you know, it's yeah. all this mythology as, yeah. a, as a person that hasn't lived it, you know, yes. you, you no, understand that. That was how it was then, you know, yeah. Detroit. And, you know, we were very big, I would say, in Chicago, Milwaukee. Wow. You know, um, those cities really embraced Wang Chung and we were 
very successful in Canada as well. So there was something about that Northern American thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, the South, we didn't really play as, as Wang Chung. I remember we did a gig in Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> I don't remember the gig much, but I remember being there and being pretty shocked <laughs> how it was down there. Do you know, you know even in, that's sort of in the early 80s, you know. And you did some work with, is it William Friedkin? Did yes. I get his name right? How yes. did that come about? Did he just contact you? Because he was a big fan. I, I yes, heard. he was a big fan of Points on the Curve. Right. And he was making a movie called To Live and Die in L.A. And I think working with a Hollywood type composer and getting despondent about the results right. and was using weight off of points on the curve as a temp track, as they called it, you know. So he would they would shoot during the day and then he'd watch the rushes with that just playing on a loop <laughs> in the background, <laughs> I think. And decided that's what he wanted the music to be. So he literally contacted us out of the blue, you know. I've often told the story of being, you know, I'd visiting this friend of mine who I hadn't really seen for years because I was a friend of his at university mm. and the phone rang in his a flat in bloomsbury because there were no mobiles in those days right. you know and he picked it up and he went oh it's for you <laughs> and it was like how does he know i'm here and it was a woman saying you know uh, mr william freakin would like to speak to you in half an hour will you be at this number and i was like okay <laughs> and i wasn't really sure who mr william freakin was do you know what i mean i expect it but Billy was an amazing person, you know. And we had this hour-long conversation where he was talking about the film and talking about music in movies and, yeah, uh, yeah, completely. Did, got, he, did got he have me. to say, I'm William Friedkin from The Exorcist? He did probably he, did, actually. Did he have to drop he, that? Yeah, I don't think he did say that, but I think I found out later sort of thing, you know. But he may well have done, yeah. He's not, he's, I mean, you know, Billy has this, I call him Billy because he's a friend. He's and a friend, That's yeah. what I call him. Uh, he has this reputation, you know, being really difficult and fiery and even scary, you know, but he was never less than charming and yeah. lovely to me, Nick, you know, um, he, uh, just a great guy. I wonder sometimes if that reputation helps him get his work done. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And I think in that business, God, you've got to be tough, man. Yeah. It's not like making pop records. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's a fairly ruthless industry, the film industry. Like, yeah. I, mean, I mean, the music industry can be terrible, but... Yeah, I think the film is, you know. Yeah. I mean, the music industry is, yeah. But somehow it's, it's kind of understandably terrible when it's terrible, if you know what I mean? It's, it's like, there's a game to be played. If you want to play it, you've got a, yeah. a chance, assuming you're any good, you know. <laughs> and if you don't want to play it, then you're not going to get anywhere, you know. Uh, but the movie business, you know, my two of my children are actors and uh, I don't envy their experiences of being no. at the whim of, people who haven't got a clue what they're doing, basically. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of bluffing and <laughs> there is the best, a, yeah. just massive hierarchy of people, you know, whereas in the music business, there's you and the songs you've written and then there's a producer who you hopefully choose well, you know, and then a record label will hopefully get behind you and have Crunchy, a go at getting yeah. on the radio and stuff. That's how it was in the 80s. Anyway. It's relatively yeah. simple because the chains of ownership, as it were, were clearly defined you know the record companies owned everything they put a lot of money into it they needed to get the money back you know and if they made a profit for you great and if they didn't well they took the hit <laughs> for the loss you know which always seemed to me a fairly reasonable way of operating for an artist at least yeah, yeah. and then after that mosaic came out didn't it yeah. and that was with is it peter wolf that, yeah peter wolf produced yeah. and uh, he did um, starship yeah. and obviously everybody had fun time it was the big track off that album. yeah what was the difference between the two albums did you notice a difference between your writing from Points of the Curve to Mosaic. Yeah. Doing the movie soundtrack <clears throat> with Freakin was, uh, you know, played right into my prog rock, arty, farty <laughs> sort of ideas <laughs> about making records, you know. And the album we released had To Live and Die in LA on it, the song, obviously, but in, but it had four songs on side one and then instrumental stuff from the movie on side two, which to me mirrored 
Bowie's albums Low and Heroes, and I love that format of yeah. songs, instrumental. And so I, I was in heaven, but of course it didn't really sell to live and die in LA, and it didn't have a top forty hit. You know, not pop top forty. You know, Billboard top forty. So uh, it was kind of like, you know, guys, you got to have a number one record. You know, otherwise it's good night. You know? <laughs> and uh, so that that was the game to be played. You know, and Peter Wolf was a guy who had hit records. You know, and the record companies believed in producers very much in those days to basically kick the bands <laughs> until yeah. they produced uh, another We Built This City sort of thing, which effectively Peter did. You know, he took everybody a fun tonight, which when I, you know, Nick came up with the initial sort of ideas for it and I sort of wrote a, a song, you know, that had that chorus, but sort of fleshed it all out. And I wrote it as a sort of slightly Hey Jude ballad type yeah. thing, you know, and Peter sort of, said, I love that song, but we've got to speed it up and make it everybody have fun tonight. And I go, no, Peter, you don't get it. It's meant to be ironic. It's meant to be, you know, <laughs> if only everybody could have fun tonight. And he's like, nah, nah, you know, and he just, you know, programmed it all up in the synth, in the sync clavier. Did a great job, you know, and Peter is like irresistible. He's just forward momentum, enthusiastic, positive, you know, me bleating away in the corner about this or that. He's kind of like, ah, whatever, you know, <laughs> just carries on. doesn't seem to deflect him at all from the, the objectives, you know. But Peter's a great musician as well, you know, so he was sensitive to, you know, Eyes of the Girl and the other really great tracks on um, on Mosaic. You know, he facilitated a great deal and we worked with great singers in, in LA. This Saida Garrett was on that album yeah, who was wow. writing with Michael Jackson and in his band. And, uh, Amazing. And we worked with Brian Maloof, the engineer, who was Michael's, engineer as well you know and so we were really in the sort of top echelons and uh yeah working in great studios it wasn't ocean way that we were in but it was one of those kind of so there was really a lot smart of, la places yeah there was a lot of <clears throat> pressure on that single and on the album there was it? yeah it was definitely yeah make or break in a way and um it made, you know, it did, it did what it was supposed to do. And uh, and then we were out on tour with Tina Turner. Wow. <laughs> and that, that was an amazing tour to do, you know. That Again, one was amazing, isn't yeah, she? phenomenal. Was it every night she was just killing yeah. it, I imagine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She used to arrive, like, literally, almost like, get out of the limo, walk on the stage, do the show, get off the stage, get back in the limo, go back to the hotel. We never saw her, apart from one evening where she watched our set and afterwards was very lovely and you know so that was all great you know but she was uh the thing i remember about her was doing top of the pops actually all right one of the times we did it twice you know so she she was on basically and it was at this time when top of the pops there was always this tussle between the mu who wanted the bands to play live and the record companies who wanted the bands to mime <laughs> because <laughs> you know if the bands were couldn't play which quite often they couldn't <laughs> you, yeah, wanna, uh -oh. you just want to hear the record you know so but they compromised by having the vocals live and the backing track recorded you know so yeah. i remember doing my vocal you know little voice and everything you know and then she was next up and did her i can't stand the rain or whatever it was that she did it was just mind-blowing hearing her singing in that room, which was almost like she didn't really need the mic. Yeah. She just filled the room, filled the space with her presence and filled the sound of her voice was just mind-blowing. You know? I saw um, Edwin Starr once. Okay. And they said to me, he doesn't use monitors because he blows them up. And I was like, <laughs> no way. Anyway, yeah. I stood at the front and he nearly blew my glasses out. Really? <laughs> I know exactly what you mean, yeah, that yeah. power. You're like, yeah. how does this come out of a person? Exactly. You know, <laughs> she's little, you know, it's like... But, uh, but no, I used to watch her shows... Uh, on, when we were on that tour and great you know and her band was great oh, I, I can imagine yeah and, and a lot of English guys in that band I think at the time oh really and, uh, yeah and at first they were a bit when you're doing a support slot you know there's always that 
how much of the stage have you got? Do you know what I mean? And to begin yeah. with, we were like in a sort of like six inch strip at the front. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> uh, but they listened to us a couple of times and kind of like, eh, these guys are pretty good. So they <laughs> gave us a bit more room and we ended up, you know, being mates and being helpful. And oh, stuff. that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And your video for um, everybody have fun to that was Godly and Cream, wasn't it? It was. And I mean, they're quite arty for their, their time, wasn't they? They're well? super. So super it's sort of, they're sort of yeah. to me, they're the jazz artists of the video world. Yeah. And what Very was, creative. Yeah. What was their experience like working with them? Were they, were they fun? Were they, uh, I yeah. bet they were great party boys. That's what yeah. I heard. <laughs> we didn't do any partying. I mean, you know, I'm very boring when it comes to all that sort of stuff. <laughs> but uh, no, they were very focused, you know, and the, the video shoot was simple for me in the sense that it was like, you know, come dressed in black, don't smile, sing the song and keep as still as you possibly can. And they filmed me like maybe eight times doing the song. And then some poor person <laughs> had to cut it all together, you know, uh, so that you get that weird flickery thing. But our model, of course, was Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer. Yeah. When I was watching the video the other day, I thought oh, it must be a huge yeah. sort of influence on it. Yeah, no, it definitely was, you know. And uh, I think we met Jan Svenkmeyer, who made Sledgehammer and did all those stop motion videos. And he was going to do something, but uh, didn't work out in the end. Yeah. I think that was towards the end of like when we were doing Warmer Side of Cool and that very last album that we did for Geffen. Yeah. yeah. So when did you when did you sort of first go solo? When was that? Um, well, Nick and I, you know, the, the process of making the last album, Warm Side, Warm Side of Cool, was, you know, we'd done Everybody Have Fun Tonight and we'd sort of got this entirely new audience mm. uh, of party people sort of thing, you know. So then it was kind of like, okay, so make another party record. Yeah. And uh, and I think I was really pulling back towards, now I want to make another To Live and Die in LA record, you know. Yeah. So Nick, you know, he's much more sensible than I am sort of thing, you know. <laughs> so he was trying to write sort of rock kind of stuff, you know, that would position us in a certain way. And I was writing whatever I thought of next, which is what I tend to do, you know, and which is not consistent at all, you know. <laughs> so we made this, almost had to call, I, I find it a very kind of uh, bumpy listen, you know, there's some great ideas on it sort of thing, but it doesn't really hang together particularly well. Yeah. And Nick and I were sort of, uh, we, uh, it's a bit like the, <laughs> it's pretentious, isn't it? It's a bit like the end of the Beatles, really. <laughs> we're not in that league. But uh, but it was similar, you know, we wouldn't actually have a massive row about things, you know, but there was a lot of like, yeah, I don't really like this, sort of silent kind of like, you know, grudgingly letting yeah. Nick do his whatever, you know, thing, you know, and he would grudgingly listen to me, you know, <laughs> write a long outro for some song and have Vinnie Caliuta playing on drums and be kind of like, oh, it's okay. You I know, mean, you seem know. to have a wonderful friendship with each other. It's, we do. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. what, 40, 50 years old now. Yeah, well. yeah. And I think we went through a phase, you know, where, well, that album was a difficult time and we needed some space away from each other. And I think bands, <clears> it's, it's a very interesting as a, a psychologist needs to get into writing about what is it that makes bands yeah. tick and not tick. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, people say oh, it's like a marriage, but it's sort of worse. <laughs> really. when, you were, when you were writing um, with Nick around, were you, were you writing with Nick in mind as opposed to your solo work where you can be more introspective kind of thing? I think, uh, I think in the sort of points on the curve time, especially, and, and, Everybody have fun tonight. I was definitely thinking about Wang Chung and what is it and writing, tailoring what I wrote to a yeah. certain extent. But I think with To Live and Die in LA and Warmer Side of Cool, I, I wasn't. I was just thinking we need to do something amazing and that will come out of just being true to the next thing I write, do you know what I mean? Rather yeah. than trying to sort of design it in a sense, you know. 
But uh, for whatever reasons, I wasn't writing particularly great <laughs> at that time, or certainly not writing stuff that was catching people's imagination. And also, I think the zeitgeist was changing uh, in the sense that, you know, the War Cycle came out really on the cusp of Nirvana and Guns N' Roses being signed to um, to Geffen. And in, in a way, it sort of felt like overnight almost, the 80s finished <laughs> when Nevermind came One out. One song, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and that was it, you know, so the choice is open to us then. Because Geffen sort of said, make another album, you know. Um, wow, he did, he was kind of yeah, cool about it. Yeah, um, but Nick and I, I, we, well, I sometimes wonder what it would have been like if we could have sort of, manned up and actually sort of like, okay, let's focus. But we would have had to have faced either in the sort of grunge direction yeah. you know, or in the sort of hip hop direction, which I think is maybe the way we'd have gone more sort of electronic and stuff. Yeah. But for whatever reason, we, we didn't do that. Because uh, I was listening to um, Taze It Up and that's quite a rock album. It is, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that's, Nick and I, that's what we grew up with in a sense. And that's what comes through, you know, comes through on Taser Up and on my solo albums there. I think in terms of a rock band, you know, with a rock drummer and a yeah. bass player and a, you know, a couple of guitar players and a keyboard player. And yeah, sort of that, that still is what I like to listen to most. I think that's the most durable. Yeah. And what's lovely as well, I was listening to your, your what, I don't know, you pronounce the name, um, Orchestography? Oh yeah, Orchestography. Yeah. I got yeah, it right. Yeah, well, you I'll get it right. very good. Yeah, I've been yeah. practising that for days. Because <laughs> that's, um, that's um, classical and, you, you, you know, the Wang Chung together. So yeah. you're kind of blending those early influences that you liked and that yeah. together. And it's if people haven't heard this album, they need to get it. It's on Spotify. Yeah. I've played it endlessly. Oh, cool. So it's just basically your songs with an orchestra, isn't it? It is. But yeah. it, it works so well. It does. It Some of them so well. work great, I think. You know, uh, Space Junk and... Um, there's a song called Overwhelming Feeling, which is a song on Taser Up, which is not a big Wang Chung hit. But uh, the people who did the orchestral album with us were very good, actually, at giving us a bit of licence to choose what we wanted to do, you know, as long as we did the hits, obviously, you know. Yeah. And I feel Overwhelming Feeling on orchestography is far better than it is on Taser so Up. Did they approach you or did you approach them? They approached us, yeah. And wow. initially they just wanted to do, I think, Dance World Days and Everybody Have Fun, you know, but we talked them into doing a whole album <laughs> and uh, they probably regret, but, uh, but it made it great fun, you know, in a sense, you know, hiring the orchestra for the day, you know, get them to do 10 songs rather than just two, you know. So, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah. So you're touring at the moment as well, aren't you? Planning to in August. Planning to in yeah, August, yeah. 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 So this is 2022, in case yes. people listen to it four years from now. <laughs> I forget to put that in sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so whereabouts are you touring? Are you local or? Yeah, well, we've got some gigs uh, in the UK. We're doing these, um, it's called Let's Rock. Let's Rock. <laughs> and uh, so it's an 80s kind of show. Uh, I think it is oriented around the 80s. And we're doing one in Newport in in Gwent, I think. Right. And then we're doing one up in Sunderland. Wow. Near where, I'm not sure. But <laughs> it's a long drive. <laughs> and if anybody wants to find out about you, where's the best place to go? That's a good question. Uh, I, the Let's Rock website, I would say, would probably be good, you know, because our Wang Chung website is a mess and Nick and I never sort of <laughs> look at it. But I tend to post on my own sites, uh, so that's jackhughes.com, and, uh, and especially my Facebook, which is... Just yeah, Jack Hughes, Jack, Jack Hughes. Hughes official sort of thing. So, know? just a couple more questions. Mm. Um, if you were starting in this business today, what advice would you give a young musician? Uh, I always remember uh, reading a similar sort of question. I think it was Carly Simon doing the interview, and she just said, "Learn your instrument." <laughs> and I thought, yeah, easy enough. But in a way, that's very good advice, you know. And I know you could advise get a great suit, get a you know get. You know, work out how to use social media and stuff. I don't know whether you can ever 
really work out how to do that. Do you? <laughs> I think ultimately, uh, you know, I've met and worked with lots of bands over the years. You yeah. Know? And, and lots of them are brilliant, you know, like really good. But what you've got to have is a song that connects with a, a mass of people. You know? Yeah. And that doesn't mean it's got to be some sort of football chanty crap thing. Do you know what I mean? It's just got to touch people in some way you know yeah and when you've got that then everything else sort of falls into place you know and you can't get that by thinking okay i'm going to sit down and write it you know it's just going to come to you one day <laughs> and but so make sure you're ready for it you know and for that uh iphone android phone whatever you know make sure your voice recorder works and get used to singing into it get used to jotting down musical ideas i, th- I think you know there are two halves of the business in a sense. There's the writer side and there's the performer side, you know. The performer side is great and some people are very drawn to that. But for me, it's a treadmill because <laughs> you've just got to keep doing it and doing it and doing it. So the writing side is where the money is. I think everybody understands that. Yeah. So uh, I would advise, you know, if you've got a feeling at all for writing songs and stuff, then get doing that and uh, and don't think that you're just going to be able to do it because you want to. It's got to come out of something deep inside you and that's going to require quite a lot of application and, like I say, just have the means with you to record any ideas that you get whenever you get. That's amazing. Jack, what can I say? Thank you so much for talking to me today. It's I've, a great I've had, pleasure. I've had a wonderful time chatting to you. Good, it's been great. And um, so Jack's on tour. Go and check it out on the dates. Check it, because obviously this could be yes. four years from now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah. check out the Wen Chung albums, all on Spotify, and there's lots of brilliant stuff. Thanks. And um, yeah, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. 